Hey, Sharon. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Sharon shared a little blessing with me, a little good news before the service tonight. Sharon, I want you on the count of three to yell at the top of your lungs what that blessing is. Stand up, girl. <laughs> Cancer free. Do we serve a good God? We do. Hey, who's prayed for Sharon? Come on. Does God answer prayer? He does. We can hear from God, can't we? That's what this series is about. It's about hearing from the Lord. Encountering the voice of God. I'm excited about this series, this Wednesday night series that we are beginning tonight. This is something that uh, I began to develop, that the Lord began to show me many years ago, and I've shared this series uh, in a couple different churches, one in Southern California, one in Northern California, and now right here in North Carolina. But before we get into it, I want to share with you the backstory on how this originated, what was the genesis of this. I served in a very small church in Carlsbad, California, back in the early 2000s. And we were small, but we operated like a big old church. We had a lot of events, a lot of programs. And when you are on staff at a small church, people have said to me, is being at a church the size of Lamb's Chapel, is that a, is that a, a tiring job? I said, sure, but less tiring than being at some of the smaller churches that I've served at. Because when you're on a staff at a small church, you wear a lot of hats. And so a typical week for me at this church was that we had our Sunday morning service, and then on Sunday evening, uh, I was in charge of running a marriage class. On Monday night, I ran a college uh, Bible study, young adults Bible study. On Tuesday night, I, I facilitated a small group. On uh, Wednesday night, uh, I, I ran a Christian Foundations course that I taught, Every other Friday was a worship band rehearsal because I was also the worship pastor at this church. And all of that activity meant that often I had to forego their Thursday night prayer gathering. And I often felt guilty about missing that. But then when I would attend it, I felt guilty because I left my family at home having not seen them the rest of the week. And so I went to my lead pastor and I confessed that I, I just didn't feel that I had the bandwidth. And I, I said, you know, I got, I got two small kids at home. I've got a wife that I'm fond of who, I, you know, I'd like to keep and who I'd like to keep me. And so I'm just not able to commit every week to coming to the prayer gathering. And he was very understanding. But a couple days later, he pulled me in his office. He said, hey, you know, I totally hear you. I get all of that. Do you think... Do you think a lot of our other people at the church are feeling the same way? Do you think that they're overwhelmed, they're, they're stretched? And I said, possibly. And we began to realize that you can even be overloaded in very good things and yet miss some of the intimate things, some of the things that God is calling us to that we really ought not miss. But we are missing it in the name of the holy, right? And he said, what if, what if... One week, every month, the last week of the month, we clear the calendar. And I mean, we don't have any 
small groups, classes, uh, meetings, rehearsals. We just clear the calendar for one week, but we call everybody to a Thursday night prayer gathering, and that was the idea. He said, do you, how do you, would you attend something like that? I said, yeah, I, I, would, I would attend that. He said, uh, well, help me with this. Can we promote that to the church? Can we cast that vision to the church? I said, sure. He said, what can we call it? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, you pray about it. You think about it. I said, okay. And so I went away, and he stopped me as I left his office. He said, well, one more thing. Whatever you name it, try to make it an acronym. And I was like, oh, buddy, you are a pastor. <laughs> Pastors love their acronyms. And so I went into my office, and I started to think about it, pray about it. And I opened my Bible. And at the time, what I was doing is I was reading through the Psalms. And one particular day, I remember I was reading Psalm 62. And this is our passage that I want to show you on the screen here. Psalm 62, 5 through 8. And it reads, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then I saw this little word. It's a word I'd seen before. Pops up in the Old Testament. S-E-L-A-H. And I'd seen this all my life in the Psalms. And in one other place in my Bible. Now, not all Bible translations have this particular word. If you've got an NIV that you're reading along with, uh, I think they've dropped this word from the NIV. But the English Standard Version, the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, they all feature this word. Now, it turns out there's not universal agreement on how to pronounce this word. Some people pronounce it sila. Some pronounce it sela. Some pronounce it sela. Uh, there is a consensus out there, and this is my preference. It's selah. Selah. Oh, the, the Jewish guy down here concurs. <laughs> selah. Now, I will say this. You can pronounce it however you want. I don't really care. You pronounce it how you want. But growing up, I would see this word, and it pops up in the Psalms. And every time I would see it growing up, I would think, you know, that looks like a name. That, that sounds like a girl's name, Sela. Sounds like a really cool girl's name. Uh, now, uh, my apologies to any boys out there named Sela. Maybe you could butch it up somehow, Salo, perhaps. Uh, it's a Hebrew word. Here's what it looks like in the Hebrew. Looks like that. Now, Hebrew scholars are not in agreement as to what this means. It's kind of a mysterious word. It's been difficult to translate. There's a debate about the meaning of this word that has raged on for millennia. It is noteworthy that it sounds very similar to another Hebrew word, selah, which means rock. There's something else intriguing. There is an Arabic word, salah, which means prayer, which means righteousness. But what does this word mean? Many, many believe it's a musical instruction. 
a musical instruction that accompanies the reading of the text. After all, the psalms are musical in nature. They are intended to be sung. They're often accompanied by musical instruments. There are directions for what musical instruments to use. There's even a Christian uh, music group that you may have heard of called Selah. David wrote 39 psalms with the caption, To the Choir Master. And 31 of those 39 psalms feature this word at the end of a section. And so if it is a musical instruction, what is it that we're instructed to do? If we're supposed to see this word and, and, and obey, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to shout it out at the end of an interlude like, you know, tequila? <laughs> Incidentally, that would have made a great title for a series. Tequila. Encountering the voice of God, you know. The New Living Translation has taken this word and they've actually translated it into English, into what they think it means. They think it means interlude, and so that's what you'll read whenever we see Selah. The NLT says interlude. I don't really care for that. If we don't know exactly what it means, we probably shouldn't try translating it. Others say Selah is not musical, it's textual. It's not about music, it's about the text, and they contend that it means to stop and reflect. In fact, you see this word in Habakkuk, in the book of Habakkuk, which is a poetic book to be sure, but it's not necessarily a musical book. And so they say it means to stop and reflect. After all, it sounds like another Hebrew word, kala, which means to measure or to weigh an object. But they say because it's textual, you measure or you weigh not an object, but you weigh what's been said. You weigh the words that were just spoken. And so I started thinking about all these. I happen to like all of these interpretations of the word. I like the musical aspect of it. I like the way the words aspect of it. But you could say both of those things carry this concept of stop and reflect. And if that's what it means, what a perfect word, I thought, for what my pastor had proposed, a week where we stop. And we reflect on God. We remove distractions. We pause and we listen. Selah. It appears in the Psalm 71 times. I actually went through every appearance of this word. You want to know what I found? I found that when the psalmist is crying out to God in desperation, in his darkest need, we find Selah. When the psalmist is repenting and confessing his sin before God, we find Selah. When God is assuring David that he hasn't left him, that he's there with him, that he's going to fight for him, we find Selah. When David is asking God to do justly with his enemies, to smite them, to deal swiftly with them, you ever do that? We find Selah. When David is rejoicing with the things that God rejoices over, we, re we find Selah. When David acknowledges God's provision, when he struggles with man's wickedness, when he uh, is listening to God's instruction, when he's experiencing the fellowship of God, when he's marveling at God's majesty, when he recognizes his own frailty, when he's being disciplined, when he's being forgiven, when he's being comforted, this word is there, Selah. And if it truly means stop and reflect, then this was the perfect word for what we wanted to do monthly and what the church was going to model, even if it meant sacrificing things that seemed awfully important to encounter the voice of God. But was that all? Was it just a word that we try to live by? Was there more that God wanted to show us? And so I began to dive deep into the Scripture. 
And I, I wanted to learn more about what was valuable in breaking from routine, in breaking from the rush of life as a, as a way to hear from God, and concepts that began to fly out from the Bible at me, it became evident that there were some attitudes that are valuable if you want to hear from the Lord, if you want to encounter his voice. There are some some attitudes, some elements, some what I became uh, familiar with as postures of the heart. Postures of the heart. And I, I assigned a name to each of these postures. And each name began with a letter that made an acronym. And it spelled out my new favorite word, Selah. And suddenly my pastor wasn't so crazy in asking for an acronym. And I'm going to go through these with you tonight. I'm going to give you an overview. Five postures of the heart that help us encounter the voice of God. And as we progress in this study, I'm going to go through these one at a time. But tonight we're just going to go through all of them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to encounter your voice and we want to do it biblically. God, we don't want to do it as a mystical exercise that is couched in emotion or experiential things, God, I just pray that you will give us a proper understanding of what you've conveyed through your word as valuable attitudes, valuable postures that we can assume spiritually. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first posture of the heart I want to talk about is silence. S is for silence. So we go back to our text. The first verse that we looked at, verse 5 of Psalm 62, it says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. This all begins with being still, being still before God. You want to know something? Sometimes God just wants you to shut up. He just wants you to shut up. Now, presumably that is not because you annoy him, although I cannot be certain about that. Uh, the reason that we know that there are times when he wants us to pipe down is because there's evidence for it in Scripture. Where? Well, Ecclesiastes for one. In Ecclesiastes 3, there is a text there that we have often associated with, uh, I don't know if you remember Pete Seeger from the 1960s. How many old folk folks do we have in here? Uh, how about the birds? You ever heard of the group called the birds? To everything turn, turn, turn. Does that sound familiar? That's Ecclesiastes. Here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Down, 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 down. You remember that? Here's what it says in verse 7. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. There's a time for silence. We see this all over the Bible. Uh, a call for us to be still. I have been a worship leader most of my ministry. I've been a singer all my life. My mom tells a story. I come from a very musical family, but I was the firstborn, so I was the first one to get out there on a stage and to sing. And so my mom would often tell a story because people would ask her, how long has Scotty been a singer? And she'd tell this story about when I was two years old and she first recognized my propensity for all things musical. The story goes that I was two, she was rocking me to sleep one night, and she began to sing me a lullaby. And I took my thumb out of my mouth 
And with my pudgy little hand, I reach up and I clasped my fingers over her lips. And I said in my two-year-old voice, don't sing, mommy. (laughs) The implication being that I had shrewdly detected some pitch problems that she was having. (laughs) Or that her melody was a little off, you know. This was the story that mom told. Uh, I don't know if that was true. I used to get a kick out of that story until my own two-year-old did it to me. But here's what Psalm 4610, it says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He says, be still and know that I am God. Question, why doesn't he just say, know that I am God? Why does he start with the command to be still? Because he knows that unless we are first still, we will not know the greatness, the vastness of his majesty. Sometimes as a parent, you need your child to calm down, to quiet down. Before you, can, you have a, a small kid in your life that comes to you screaming sometimes, and they're in tears. What do they have to do? What do you have to get them to do to, to quiet their spirit? You want to help them, but they can't, even, they can't even understand what kind of help you're going to provide them until you can first get them to calm down. But here's the problem with silence. The problem with silence is that the world does not see its merit. The world sees silence as weakness. It sees it as, as indecisiveness, as fearfulness, as ignorance. I've been in many meetings where if you did not open your mouth and contribute to that meeting, there were conclusions drawn about you about how much value you add to the room. And that may or may not be fair. You might be scintillatingly brilliant and you're just quietly you know, processing, okay? On the other hand, you might not be so bright, in which case silence is a pretty good idea. <laughs> because as Abraham Lincoln said, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) And so this command, be still, forces us to think on two things. Number one, I am finite. And number two, God is infinite. Here's what Exodus 14, 14 says. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Some versions say you have only to be still, okay? This is what God wants us to do, to acknowledge his greatness by our silence, by our stillness. Uh, Perhaps in a culture, and this is our culture, of, you know, don't just stand there, do something. We need to adopt an attitude of, don't just do something, stand there. This is what God calls us to. Silence may indeed demonstrate weakness, but the Bible is clear that in our weakness, what happens? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And even Jesus models this kind of stillness. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is betrayed. Here's what Matthew tells us. In Matthew 26, verse 39... Christ is alone in prayer. It says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now that is the first instance of prayer in this passage. In verse 40, it says, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me for one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, it says, for the second time he went away and prayed. What did he pray? My father, if this cannot pass until I, unless I drink it, your will be done. That's the second instance of prayer in this passage. Verse 43, and again he came, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words Again, you got three separate instances of prayer on the part of Christ in this passage. Matthew says it. Luke says it. How long did he pray for each time? We think about an hour. Says so. Could you not watch with me for one hour? And so it's regarded that each time he would go away, he would pray for an hour. What was the content of what Jesus prayed for an hour? All we have recorded here is along the lines of, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours. That's all we see that he prayed. How do you pray that for an hour? If you read that as slowly as you can, the most time it's going to take you is 15 seconds. What do you think he prayed for the remaining 59 minutes and 45 seconds each time he went away to pray? I would submit to you that it's very possible that he prayed in silence, that he was silent before God that he spent time being still before the Father. This is a silence of confirmation. He knows the will of the Father. He already knows it before he begins praying. This cup is before me. Let it pass, but if it's not, if it's not your will that it pass, I will accept it. I will align with your will, you see. There may have been silence on the part of the Father. During that, do you ever experience that when you pray and you don't feel that God is responding to you in prayer? Does that ever happen? Is God ever silent with us? Sometimes He is. You ever wonder if there's a reason for that? Maybe the reason that He is being silent is to wait for you to be submissive in silence before Him because you already know what His will is. And so it's important as we learn to wait in silence that we are in the presence of a great and mighty and powerful Father. And there is a time to speak, but there's also a very important place for silence because your silence can often be more articulate than your words. There are many an occasion that I look back in my life and I wished I'd kept my yapper shut. And what this does in your notes is that this produces unity with God's will and peace with God's plan. And I encourage you, to try this out in your prayer time. Sometimes just be silent before God. It's not that you're emptying your mind. This is not some kind of Eastern meditation. This is not om or anything like that. This is just you unifying your will with the will of God. That's the first posture. The second posture in your notes, E is for expectation. Expectation. When I think of expectation, I think of my children on Christmas morning standing over me as I lay in bed with a cup of water. They are expectantly waiting for the presents that they know are coming to them. I don't think that's what this is, this expectation. Look at, look at Psalm 62.5 once again. I'm going to show you the new King James. I like the way it words. It says, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. Expectation in this context is not the assurance that whatever you want in the flesh, you're going to get it. Okay? What is this? This is trust. This is trust. Namely, in your notes, this is trust 
in the fact that God hears us, that he is speaking. And it's also trust in the content of what he has already spoken. And that's imperative. That is very important for us to get our head around. We must live in expectation that God hears us. Do you believe that God hears you? Do we ever wrestle with that? Sometimes we think God's not listening to me. God is not hearing me. Why do we worry about that? Why do we conclude that he's not listening? You know, Psalm 4 verse 3 says this, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The Lord hears when I call to him. He has set apart the godly for himself. He hears. Some of us don't think that God hears us because we don't think of ourselves as godly. We've fallen short of his standard. This is our rationale. Therefore, we're unworthy of being listened to. Now, the first part of that is actually true. We have fallen short of a standard, have we not? Scripture's clear about that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is our reality. But read on. In Romans 3, verse 24, we've fallen short of the glory of God and are what? Justified. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What does it mean to be justified? You've fallen short, but if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified. That means that you come by faith and he declares you righteous. You are declared righteous by faith. You haven't earned it. You simply have faith. And God looks at you and declares you to be righteous. And we've got to understand that. And we've got to believe uh, that in our daily life. We've got to live that out, live it like we believe it. What is it that keeps people from God? It's sin. It's sin. Christ died for our sin. We put our faith in his sacrifice, and now we are declared righteous. That's the opposite of being sinful, you see. And sometimes I think we, we ascribe too much power to forgiven sin. I want you to understand this. Forgiven sin is sin that has no power. Are you giving sin in your life that is already forgiven? Are you giving it too much power? Are you assuming that God has not given you the time of day because of sin that he's already forgiven? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you believe that or you don't, but if you do, you can believe that God will hear you when you call to him. If God has forgiven you, he will hear you. This is a pet topic of mine. It's a pet topic of mine because this is where people either conquer or they are conquered. Okay? Are there times when God doesn't answer prayer? Well, yes. Psalm 66, uh, John 9, they both say that God does not hear the prayers of those who remain in sin. Proverbs 1 says he doesn't hear the prayers of those who reject his call. Uh, Proverbs 21 says he does not hear the prayer of those who ignore the cries of the poor. Jeremiah 11, Ezekiel 8 say he does not hear the prayer of those who worship idols. James 1 says he doesn't hear the prayer of those who have no faith. James 4, 1 Peter 5 says he doesn't hear the prayer of those who are proud. Uh, Micah 3 says he doesn't hear the prayer of those who mistreat his people. But hear me, understand something. None of these scriptures refer to believers. 
The context of all of those that I just cited there is the unbelieving heart. When God saved you, when you came by faith, you were justified, you no longer fit into the category of everybody described in those verses right there. And so we got to understand, this comes down to what we believe about God. What does God say about himself? He is trustworthy. He never lies. we got to stop ascribing to God the flaws of people we know. People we know. Uh, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? He hears my prayer. He has set apart the godly for himself. Has he spoken or will he not fulfill it? God hears. I'm going to come back to the following verses over our study. Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Okay, this is to the Christ follower. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Does that sound like a God that ignores? Matthew 21, 22, and who, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father be glorified in the Son. John 15, 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence, I love that word, that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears it. Pastor Scott, are you talking name it and claim it stuff? Not in the least. Not in the least. We're not saying God wants you to be prosperous. We're not saying you just, you know, call upon the Lord for that Lamborghini that you have so needed. This is that the Son brings glory to the Father. You ask in accordance with His will, you understand. But He will hear you. He will hear you. His answer may not always be what you expect it to be, but He does hear your prayer. And it's always an opportunity. Your darkest trial When you call out upon the Lord, it's always an opportunity for the Son to glorify the Father. How powerful is this truth? Mark 11, 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, now you just buckle up, okay? Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. A mountain? Really? A mountain. This verse might test how literally you think we ought to interpret the scripture. You'd say that you'd tell a mountain to throw itself into the sea. That's what I am to believe. Isn't that too miraculous? Well, you tell me something. What's more miraculous? Asking him for that or asking him to cure you of addiction? or to to heal the addiction of another person. Is that a mountain for somebody? Absolutely it is. Is a broken marriage a mountain? Is uh, a dysfunctional home a mountain? What about physical or emotional abuse? Is that a mountain? Absolutely it is. And guess what? Through prayer and reliance on God, those mountains can be thrown into the sea, and that is as big a miracle as anything you can fathom. And so this, this text is all about our need for faith, our expectation. We need faith. And when we pray, we don't always get the exact thing that we're asking for in specificity. 
But here's what happens to us in prayer. Our faith is strengthened. And that is the most important thing. That is the, mo- that is the greatest thing that we need. Expectation. We can have every expectation that God will never stop loving us. And because he loves us, he will hear us. He will respond to us. But if we expect that God will hear us and respond to us, then we have to be willing to do something. And here's posture number three in your notes. L is listening. Listening. Psalm 62, 5 in the English Standard Version, we've read it before, for God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. Underline the word wait, for my hope is from him. This is a delightful little translation. I want to, if you don't know it, I'm introducing it to you now and I recommend it. I don't teach from it, but I do enjoy it. It's called the Amplified Bible. Here's what it says in the Amplified Bible. For God alone, my soul waits in silence and quietly submits to him. He said, I thought the word was listening. I don't see the word listening there. Well, you see submit? You see that word submit? We often think of listening as hearing audibly, hearing, but are hearing and listening the same thing? They are not the same thing. What's the difference? In your notes, this goes beyond hearing to submission. Submission. My parents used to ask me, are you listening? I used to think that was the stupidest question in the world. Am I listening? I'm right here. (laughs) Now I'm a parent. I know exactly why they're asking that question. You parents know what I'm talking about. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to the words coming out of my mouth? Right? And it's not just children that have a problem with this. Husbands have a problem with this. A few years ago, it was Father's Day. I remember distinctly, our church back in California, we did a lot of big events on days like Father's Day, Mother's Day. You know, on a Sunday, we'd have big things, promotional type things, and we'd promote it to the community. And I remember on many a Father's Day, we'd have things like a car show or motorcycles, you know, just kind of for fun. Uh, we'd, 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 we'd feed everybody bacon for the dads. You know, we'd, we'd have root beer, things like that. One Father's Day... On our front lawn, we had a mechanical bull. Yeah. And uh, we had three services on Sunday. And by the third service, my wife has already attended and gone back to the house. And on this particular weekend, we were getting ready to leave town. We're going to a family reunion. And so my wife was home packing, and she called me. It was during the third service. I I was done with my responsibilities. The service was still going on. I was kind of walking around the campus. And she said, are you able to get out of there early so you can come and help me pack for the trip? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, what are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm going out here. I'm going to ride this mechanical bull. She said, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. She said, no, you're not. I said, why? She goes, honey, Scott Grimm, don't you ride that bull. You don't go anywhere near that bull. I said, but it's Father's Day. She said, you're going to hurt your back. And then you're going to be of no use to me as we're getting ready for this trip. And you're going to complain all the way to the reunion. And then you won't enjoy your family because you're going to be in pain. I said, oh. I said, listen. Madam, I thank you for your concern. I said, I will will take it uh, under advisement. And I'll see you when I get home. And I got off the phone and I went out. And somebody said, Pastor Scott, you going to ride the bull? I said, oh, probably not. I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I said, by the way, 
Who's got the record on this thing? They said, the executive pastor. I said, let me on that bull. And I got on that bull, and I broke the record. And I think I broke something else. I knew six seconds in. I didn't even make it the full seven seconds. Right? I, I, my back went, ah, you know, and I knew the woman was right. Now, had I, had I heard her words, had I heard her concern, yes. Did I listen? No. No. Listening involves submission. And many of us don't listen to God. We hear him. We know what he's saying. But we don't necessarily like what he's saying. And so we claim to hear what we want to hear. And, or we divine the answer that we want. Or we wait for a different word, you know. And it doesn't work out very well. Now, what are the ways that God speaks? If you look at the scripture, what are some of the ways that he speaks? He speaks in a variety of ways. He speaks directly to the likes of Abraham, whom we're studying on Sunday right now. We think of Moses. He speaks through dreams. I think of Daniel. Think of Joseph. He speaks through his written word. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments, delivers that to the people. He, he speaks in audible ways many times. I think of Saul on the road to Damascus. Jesus spoke to him directly. Saul, why do you persecute me? He speaks through the prophets to the land of Israel in the Old Testament. He speaks sometimes through angels to the likes of Mary or Elizabeth in Scripture. He speaks through the Spirit to Paul directly. These are all miraculous means by which God speaks in Scripture. Is he still speaking supernaturally today? Look, God is supernatural. He can, he can do whatever he deems necessary to do. He's a supernatural God. But if we get caught up in what we consider to be supernatural, I think we're going to miss out on something because the primary way that God speaks, his chosen vehicle of communication today, mainly in your notes, is the Bible. It's the Word of God. This is the primary way of his revelation. You're holding some variant of it in your hands. Be a hard copy of the Bible or electronically on your phone. It is his word. It is supernatural. You understand that? There's no greater nobility in having a dream whereby God speaks to you than when you open his perfect word. It is flawless. It was divinely delivered by the Spirit to humans that he selected, that he imparted his thoughts to, and they transcribed it. He has preserved his word. It is without error. The first place you need to go when you want to hear from God is the Scriptures. Anybody who says, I want to hear God's voice, but they don't read the Bible, they don't really want to hear God's voice. And so I encourage you to read the Bible. And if you don't think of it as supernatural, you need to expand your concept of what supernatural is. The second way that he speaks to the believer is through the indwelling Holy Spirit in your notes. It's the Holy Spirit. When you receive grace, Christ, through his Spirit, comes, indwells you, takes up residence in you permanently. And it's available to all who have received grace. You receive the Holy Spirit. You cannot be born again without the Holy Spirit coming and taking up residence in you. He lives in you. And does he speak to you? Yes, he prompts you. He prompts you in accordance with his word. And so the word of God and the Holy Spirit, these are his primary means of communication. Now, they don't work independently of one another. I want you to understand that. In your notes, the Holy Spirit echoes and helps interpret Scripture. Whatever you 
our, our, our hearing in the Spirit is echoing what God has said in some fashion in His Word. You are not receiving fresh revelation that is heretofore unspoken. It's going to echo some truth in His Word when you read the Bible. And you need the Holy Spirit to help you understand what you're reading. When you open, I always tell people, you want to get the most out of your Bible? You open the Word of God. First thing you got to do, you pray. And you ask God to help you via the Spirit that lives in you to discern and understand. Scripture says that about itself, that, that the unspiritual man cannot know the things of God. It is spiritually discerned. You need the Spirit living in you to understand and apply what you read in His Word. And then in your notes, you need to understand that the Scriptures authenticate what we believe we hear in the Spirit. So if you say, well, God's telling me this in the Spirit, well, you better check it against His Word. Because it, if it conflicts or contradicts uh, His Word, it ain't from Him, whatever you think you're hearing. So the Bible confirms that what we think we're hearing is indeed the voice of God. It's a validator. Now, what is our proper response to all of this? Well, the next posture in your notes is called adoration. A is for adoration. Go back to uh, Psalm 62, verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. This is worshipful language that David is lavishing on God. When we think of worship, if I said the word worship to you, what's the first thing you think of? Some of you may think of what we did tonight. You think of the team up here, the worship band, the songs that we're singing. You think of music. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I really don't. I think it's very natural to think of worship in a musical sense. God gave us the gift of music. It is a vehicle for uh, magnifying him. But if we limit our worship of God to the musical, then we are limiting the ways in which we worship God. You worship with your heart. You worship with your mind. You worship with your emotions. You worship with your actions. And each point that we've gone through so far in this acronym of Selah, each one of those postures is itself a worship expression. But a big part of what we're talking about here with adoration are the words that we lavish upon God when we meet with Him one-on-one. -on -one. The things that you tell Him. You tell him you love him. You tell him how great he is. You, you magnify him with your lips. You're declaring his power, his works. You're showing gratitude. And the words are not the whole of worship, but they complete the picture of worship. And my prayer is that worship for you is not merely the three or four songs that we sing on Sunday morning, and you go out of here and you say, well, that was great worship. But that that experience that we go through collectively in our assembly is really, is really just the fulfillment of what you have been engaging in all week long. It's a, the completion of your worship. And so in your notes, what is adoration? This is worship in response to and anticipation of God's voice. We don't worship him because we've heard from him. We respond to him even before the fact. Okay? Sometimes when we don't feel that we've heard his voice, when we feel that we're in the dark, when we feel that God is silent, folks, that's the time you need to worship the Lord. 
You need to lavish praise upon him because that evidences your faith. You need to adore him. You need to declare his might, his power, what he has already done. I bet you, Sharon, did you, did you thank God for healing you before he healed you? Day one. Day one. We worship God for who he is. And we worship him in faith. And we come expectantly, not because we're dictating the outcome, but because of who he is and what he's capable of. We trust his sovereignty. There's some people that pray for that, just as Sharon did, and they're not physically healed. Was their prayer any less powerful? No. Is God any less powerful to them? No. No, it's his character. It's his nature that is worthy. That's what worship means. We're going to go deep on the word worship and the expressions of worship when we get to that, that week where we study adoration. But this all leads us to our final posture in your notes. This is heart cry. Heart cry. Psalm 62, 8 says, Trust him in all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. An attitude of Selah helps us to know how to cry out to God. Have you ever experienced a need to cry out to God? How many of you knew that you needed to cry out to God, but you didn't know what to say? That's a heart cry. It's, it's an innate longing. It's a desire that you want to express. Sometimes you don't know how to express it. You know what happens then? There's good news in Romans 8, 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Isn't that a blessing to know? When you don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for you. Sometimes our heart cry has to do with the confession of sin. When sin remains unconfessed, there's a breakdown in our intimacy with God. It's not that he stops hearing us, but there's an intimacy that we're not experiencing like we ought to. He still loves us, but we just can't enjoy the relationship. There still is a relationship, but we're not enjoying the fullness of it. And in one of the many Selah passages, I think we see this played out. Here's what David experiences. In in Psalm 32, verse 4, he says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then we see that word, selah. And David is sensing something. He's sensing a a chastening by God. And it's as if then he says, when we see that word selah, it's as if he's saying, I need to stop. I need to be silent. I need to expect I need to trust. I need to listen. I need to worship. And then there's a heart cry that happens as he goes on to verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then we see another Selah on the heels of that. It's like he's saying, I want to hear that part again. I want to stop and reflect on that last line. And you forgave me. You forgave me. You ever just sit and ponder God's forgiveness? You ever do that? He healed Sharon of cancer? Well, guess what? If you're a child of God, he's healed you of your sin, of your eternal sinful state. He healed it. By his stripes, we are healed. Amen? And so sometimes when we don't know how to pray and we've got this 
innate heart cry, God is using it to transform us so that when we do cry out, when we do articulate, our desires, our innermost desires, actually look like His. He is shaping us. This is the most unexpected thing about this whole Selah concept is that the more we are still, the more we trust, and the more we trust, the more we begin to listen, and the more we begin to listen, the more we respond to God's voice with worship and with adoration, and as we authentically worship more and more, we then begin to find out something unique, that God's desires are becoming our desires. And so in your notes, this, this heart cry, this is the expression of our deepest longings to God as our desires begin to mirror His. And this is where it really becomes special. And the things we want, we suddenly realize, are the things that God wants. And we become more like Him. It didn't used to be that way, you know? I used to want material things. I used to want fame. I wanted glory for myself. I wanted cash. I wanted relationships. I wanted status. Whatever. And the more I grew close to God, then I began to realize that the nature of what I desire is changing. And you're, it's called sanctification. And you're becoming like him. You want what he wants. You rejoice in what he rejoices. You know what causes him to rejoice? Amazingly, you do. His design for all that you ought to be. He rejoices in that. Zephaniah 3.17 is one of my favorite verses. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine what that song must be like? Man, we get to singing in here, and sometimes I rapture out right down there on that front row. Can you imagine what God's song about you is like? What is his voice like when he sings? You know, when I was growing up, I read, I read the books of J.R.R. Tolkien. I read The Lord of the Rings long before the movies came out. I loved him. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a believer. He was, a, he was the man that was responsible for influencing C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an agnostic. And through the influence of J.R.R. Tolkien, Lewis came to faith in Christ and became the premier apologist of the 20th century deep, profound Christian author through Tolkien. Tolkien wrote all of the wonderful Lord of the Rings books and The Hobbit. His writings are filled with spiritual themes, biblical themes. You see them all over the place. They're, they're incredible themes of redemption, of Christ, of the prophets. When you know how to look for them, you see them come alive in his works. But his intricate, amazing world that he created required a back history, and so he kept a log that would detail how this, this land of Middle-earth came to be, and all these characters, and this great overarching epic saga. How did it come to be? And so he wrote a history of Middle-earth. He never published it while he was alive. After his death, his son edited it, and it was published, and it was called The Silmarillion. I've got a copy of it. 
I was turned on to it by a missionary friend who shared with me that he came to faith in God. He was not a believer. He was an agnostic. And then he read the Silmarillion. And God used it in his life. And he began to be a seeker. And he eventually became a Christian. But the way Tolkien writes is in the beginning of this book, it reads almost like Genesis. It's almost biblical in its, in its tone. And there's a character that Tolkien created to represent God the Father. And it's a character named Iluvatar. And he's the creator of the whole realm of Middle-earth. And in the beginning, he's, he's creating these angelic beings called the Ainur. And he teaches them a song. And he, in his great mighty voice, he just begins to sing. And as he sings, he is singing things into existence. All of the creatures and the people and the things. He's teaching them this song. And the Ainur begin to sing with him and he teaches them all of these melodies and harmonies and they begin to sing along and there's all these interwoven uh, uh, harmonies that are so intricate and beautiful and majestic as they sing together the great song of Iluvatar. But there's the greatest of all the Ainur in the midst of that and his name is Melkor. And Melkor decides to sing his own song and he's not in tune with everybody else. And it's very discordant. And Iluvatar stops everyone and he commands them to be silent. And he teaches them his melody once again. And slowly they begin to join in and sing with him. And the, the, the swell becomes majestic. And they sing in unison once again and in harmony as well. And then Melkor, he starts singing his own song again. And this time he's inviting other Ainur to come and join him in his song. And finally, Iluvatar can have no more of this disharmony. And so he casts Melkor out of his presence. And he and his cronies go down to Middle-earth to wreak havoc. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you can see the parallel. And of course, it would remind you of the story of Lucifer, who wants to be God, and he's cast out. But I'm also reminded of Zephaniah 3.17. Of the great song of our God, how he sings over us, how he invites us to be in harmony with him. And so the truth of that little passage in Tolkien reminds me of that, that God is singing. That discord with God's song leads us to confusion, and confusion creates a sense of separation. And when you sing with a group of people, it's very important that you listen and that you don't rely on your own sensibilities to sing the song because I don't care how confident you are, if the notes are wrong, you're not going to be in tune, in harmony. And sometimes when that's the case, you got to stop. you got to be silent. you got to trust what you're hearing around you. And you got to feel that rhythm. you got to come back in and not sing your own song, but sing the song that has been appointed for you to sing. I am looking forward to the rest of this time together. I want us to practice something right now. I want you to just bow where you are in silence. Where you are is just you and God. And I just want you to take a moment to be still 
and to know who he is. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you. Sometimes we get so caught up in our own agenda, even in the, the busy things that seem very noble and very, very Christian. We can still be distracted from what you've called us to. As we continue in this study, God, would you teach us what it means to encounter your voice. To not assume it is what it is not. And we ask for you to guide us and give us humility as you lead us on this journey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.